Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. In this week's show, OPEC in Ecuador. The odds still are that the OPEC ministers will choose not to lower or raise their production quotas on Saturday when they gather. Acquisitions and mergers in oil and gas. One of the key conviction calls we have is towards the natural gas market, uh, predominantly in the US. Uh, we also have exposure to what we consider to be cheap oil leverage, to drillers, and also to cheap integrated oil companies with strong free cash flows and good dividend yields. The climate summit in Cancun. Astonishingly, given the build-up to these talks, which was marked by conflict and disagreement, the talks themselves are actually going rather well. And plans for new nuclear in the UK. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. We start this week's show in the UK and the government's insistence on no public subsidy for new nuclear. Operators will have to set aside their own money to help pay for decommissioning and their full share of waste disposal from day one. Joining me on the line to discuss this is Roger Clayson, Legal Director for Adelshaw Goddard, previously Head of Legal at the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. Thanks very much, Roger, for joining us. I just wondered if you could maybe list for us some of the challenges that operators of new nuclear reactors face in the UK. Obviously, there is the issue of planning. We have the national policy statement, which is now out for consultation again. We're expecting that to be dealt with by the end of January with the expectation it will be ratified in spring. Then, of course, we are waiting for the new major infrastructure projects area of the planning directorate to be set up. And when nobody is yet exactly sure what the procedures are going to be with that new body, although we understand it's going to be similar to the Infrastructure Planning Commission. That'll be the commission that will say yes or no as to whether you can build a new reactor somewhere in the UK. Absolutely. It will give a consent to development, which is fairly all-encompassing. What about the timing of all this? EDF and Centrica are planning to build the first new reactor in the UK at Hinkley Point. When do they need this planning approval to be in place? Well, they're pretty well advanced, as I understand it, EDF and Centrica. They actually have an application almost ready to be submitted to the Infrastructure Planning Commission uh, before it's actually abolished. So... I think they're hoping to progress that fairly quickly. That will be passed on to the new body. My guess is that they would look to have a consent in place, perhaps by two years' time at the very latest, in order to maintain their proposed timetable. And, and obviously for these companies, we're talking about billions of pounds worth of investment, and the government, as recently as yesterday, insisted again that there would be no public subsidy for new nuclear. A, do you think that's really going to be the case? And, and B, how do the operators get security of investment? There's a number of factors in there, Sylvia, which uh, are of some concern. Essentially, First of all, the operators have to make provision for the cost of decommissioning and also the cost of storing or rather disposing of the waste. That is a bit of an unknown factor at the moment. Secondly, the costs of decommissioning themselves are going to be difficult to calculate. 
Thirdly, there is the construction period and potential cost overruns. To my knowledge, nobody has yet built a nuclear power station which is coming on time and to budget. And I think it's worth emphasising this is the first time really in history that anybody's tried to build a nuclear power station on a commercial basis. It's always been previously on subsidy or with state support. Just finally, we're expecting the government to unveil its consultation on electricity market reform next week. They've obviously said that they would put the framework into place, the regulatory framework, um, to incentivize operators to invest in new nuclear. What are you expecting in that? I'm not entirely clear what is going to be in that, Sylvia, but it's interesting that the government have recently said in an open forum that although there's going to be no special public subsidy for new nuclear, the same subsidies as are available for renewables are going to be available for new nuclear, i.e. any low-carbon technology. So a subsidy for everything um, or some sort of incentive for every kind of energy, but not a specific thing for nuclear? That's right. And I, I think that something will take the form of a, a, a carbon floor price or something of that nature, I would guess. Thank you very much for that. Let's move to OPEC and the meeting on Saturday in Ecuador to review member states' production quotas. On his way to the meeting is our energy correspondent, David Blair. Before he left... I asked him, given that the price of oil has suddenly shot up to over $90 a barrel, whether there might be a bit more excitement. Well, $90 a barrel is the informal ceiling that OPEC's most powerful member, Saudi Arabia, had set for the oil price. The fact that it's been breached means that this simply won't be a routine meeting. However, it hasn't been breached by very much. At the moment, it's only a dollar or so. It remains to be seen whether this is a sustained increase or whether it's simply a blip. And the odds still are that the OPEC ministers will choose not to lower or raise their production quotas on Saturday when they gather. It's still more likely than not that they will preserve the status quo. Right. And and why is the price of oil suddenly shot up? The great question is whether this is due to fundamental changes in the dynamics of demand and supply or whether it's simply a speculative blip. It's certainly true that demand has been growing more strongly than many had forecast. And as we know to our cost, the weather in Europe at the moment is unusually severe. So both of those factors certainly have come into play. But then, of course, there are the more speculative factors, such as the weakness of the dollar uh, and the fact that there's still an inverse relationship, broadly speaking, between the value of the dollar and the price of oil. So it's very hard to disentangle all those effects. Uh, The test will be whether the price rise is sustained. So if this meeting were taking place, say, in January or February, and if prices were then still above $90 a barrel, then it's more probable that OPEC would act. For the moment, the expectation generally is that they will choose to wait and see. Who's actually sort of hurting from the high oil price? All consumer countries are paying more than they otherwise would. So uh, in a sense, that's most of the rest of the world. But the balance of interest within OPEC itself is more complicated. There are countries which very much do want prices to be even higher than their present level. Venezuela, for example, has said publicly that they want a price of about $100 a barrel. And you know, Iran, Algeria are known to agree with that view. Their difficulty is that if they risk changing the production system, the quota system at all, then the danger is that they would allow an opening for Saudi Arabia to use some of its, or some of its excess capacity and produce more which would have the effect of reducing prices. So the divisions within OPEC on this question are such that the easiest option for them all is simply to preserve the status quo, and that's the most likely outcome. Thank you very much and have a good trip.
That brings us nicely to our third topic today, acquisitions and mergers in the oil and gas sector. Jonathan Waghorn from Investec joins me in the studio to discuss this. Thanks very much for coming in, Jonathan. You co-manage Investec's Global Energy Funds, and I just wondered if, first off, you could tell us what kind of stocks you've picked to invest in. I mean, who are you buying or positive on at the moment? We play a number of themes in the portfolio at this point in time. One of the key conviction calls we have is towards the natural gas market, uh, predominantly in the U.S., Uh, We also have exposure to what we consider to be cheap oil leverage to drillers and also to cheap integrated oil companies with strong free cash flows and good dividend yields. Can you name any names in those three categories? Within the natural gas space, again, uh, on a U.S. bias, we've got five real key picks. One is Ultra Petroleum. We have Southwestern, Range Resources, Quicksilver and Petrahawk. And on the integrated oil majors, I just wonder who you thought was cheap, given that total shareholder returns from them hasn't, haven't been that stellar over the past five years. And especially the last year, the oil sector has been massively out of favour. I guess BP's blowout in the Gulf of Mexico has uh, really reduced opinion towards the, the oil space. The names we hold currently, Total, Royal Dutch Shell and Exxon. And I'd highlight the likes of Total there, a a European major, has been hit very, very hard this year purely because it's part of Europe. But we see that trading at around seven times P.E., offering a 7% dividend yield. And the first rule of broking that I was taught was if you can buy a stock on a P.E. equal to a dividend yield, that's generally going to be a pretty good bet. We're here to talk about M&A activity in the sector. And and you've noticed quite a few deals happening over the past six weeks or so, uh, especially in the U.S. What areas are attractive and who's, who's doing the buying? Most of the deals we've seen really have been in the gas space, you could probably say over the last 18 months or so. In terms of purchases, it's been the majors, BP, Total as examples. And then also more recently, the national oil companies, the likes of Mitsubishi, Sui, Korea Gas, the Chinese in there as well. Getting access to cheap resource, which is, which is certainly available there in, in terms of gas in the U.S. markets. Uh, we've seen three things just recently that make us feel more positive. It's two companies taking themselves private or certainly in the process of taking themselves private. Again, pure gas producers. That's Quicksilver and Exco. And then thirdly, we've seen Chevron buy a company called Atlas. Again, a shale gas producer with a lot of shale gas potential. Um, in the Marcellus. And shale gas has obviously been quite a phenomenon in North America over the past 18 months or so. The prices that the companies are paying today, are, are they much higher than, than they would have paid last year, presumably given it's, it's just a sort of hot spot at the moment? In fact, you, you could probably argue the opposite and that gas prices in the US are exceptionally depressed. So we have $4.50 gas and that's up 20-25% over the last month. So, so gas was at, was at three fifty. Gas is low because there is oversupply in the market. Gas is massively out of favour and the gas equities are obviously down as a direct result of that. So when you start to pay 30-40-50% premium, these deals are actually being done at what we consider to be still quite attractive valuation. And we would highlight that especially with two management teams taking or choosing to take themselves private shows the management themselves see an awful lot more upside even at their takeout prices than the market is currently giving those companies. And did you expect this particular trend to, to go global at all next year? I don't see why it shouldn't. In terms of the key drivers of M&A activity, we talked about the integrated oils there. The key problem for the integrated is they are boring. And that's one of the key complaints towards the likes of a total limited growth. How do the integrators get growth? Through buying assets, through buying companies. And a number of these gas EMPs grow at 20% per annum plus. So that can be an interesting and very helpful shot in the arm in terms of production growth for the integrated oils. Now, these things can only happen if financing is available. 
And what we do have at the minute is cheap and ready financing. So the big companies we mentioned earlier can easily raise $25 billion at LIBOR plus 100 basis points. So, you know, two, two and a half percent financing. So it's easy to fund these deals. At that kind of financing, prices can be paid well in excess of what the, the stock market is currently pricing in. And we think it's quite a potent setup for further M&A activity. Obviously, focused in gas over the last six months or so, no reason why that shouldn't go global and into oil projects and companies with oil exposure, companies whose, whose share prices have lagged in the recent run-up in crude prices. And I guess the key driver for these companies is that they need to buy production. If they can't find their own production, you know, you buy it. That's that's exactly it. So you buy a company that's that's 10% of your size, that's growing at 10% per annum, it immediately adds 100 basis points to your growth. Uh, within two or three years, the investment community has forgotten that that integrated oil company acquired that growth, and that can easily get merged into the existing assets. On top of that, they buy long-term potential resource, which again, is not necessarily fully valued in some of these smaller companies. Just one final question. Are you seeing or do you expect the national oil companies to be outspending the international oil companies? Yeah, they've definitely done that over the last two or three years. They've had a financing advantage in that the cost of capital of national oil companies has been one or two percentage points. Given that the majors now have a similar financing advantage, we'd expect to see the majors starting to close that gap somewhat versus the NOCs. The NOCs will still be ahead. They're still willing to pay more, but there's certainly going to be more competition, we think, in the coming year or two. Thank you very much. And to our final topic for today, Cancun and the ongoing Climate Summit. Fiona Harvey, our environment correspondent, is at the meeting. I spoke to her yesterday, and this is what she told us about the mood at the meeting. Astonishingly, given the build-up to these talks, which was marked by conflict and disagreement, the talks themselves are actually going rather well. Some people that I've talked to are attributing it to the sunny atmosphere. Delegates are actually getting on with work. No one has walked out. There haven't been any major conflicts. There are no signs yet of a clear agreement, but the fact that at this stage of the talks, with three days left to go, people are still in a cooperative mood, is actually being seen as a very positive sign. You can contrast this with uh, what happened last year at Copenhagen, when from the very beginning there were uh, deep disagreements that only got worse as the conference progressed. One thing you mentioned before you went off to Cancun was that we might see some sort of agreement on forestry, and I just wondered how those talks were going. The forestry talks have gone rather well. We have the outlines of an agreement. It's called RED, which stands for Reduced Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation. The problem now is getting funding to encourage poor countries to preserve their forests. Some of that has been forthcoming. The Americans have reiterated their promise here in Cancun to provide a billion dollars worth of funding for that. With the pledges of other nations, that comes to somewhere between five and six billion dollars. But the problem is that that money will only last for a few years. So what do we do after that? Uh, And there's no agreement on that yet. Also, um, as concerns getting an actual sign-off on RED, that hasn't happened yet either. One of the stumbling blocks there is that the US is very insistent that we won't sign off on anything until everything is agreed. This is a rather contentious attitude. Some of the other delegations would like to get bits and pieces of a possible deal sorted out here. But the US delegation is saying that really we need to sort out everything before uh, you can have any kind of agreement. Everything presumably includes getting China on board. 
China's position uh, at Cancun has been very interesting. In the lead-up to this conference, China and the U.S. had not been getting on. They had had some bitter words a few months ago. But here at Cancun, the delegations seem to be cooperating very well. I've had very warm words from the U.S. delegation towards uh, China and similarly from Chinese delegates here. The issue is over how to monitor greenhouse gas emissions. China is very sensitive on this topic because China is very eager to avoid any suggestion that its sovereignty might be compromised. So China does not want to submit to any kind of international monitoring. But there are compromises on the table. Uh, I spoke yesterday to the Indian Environment Minister, Jaram Ramesh, and he has tabled a proposal on the measurement and verification of emissions that could be acceptable to the United States and hasn't yet been accepted by China, but it's possible that in some modified form it would be. So if we could get agreements, if there was an agreement between the US and China on this important issue here at Cancun, then that would be a major step forward. That was Fiona Harvey speaking yesterday. She'll be back in the studio next week with a full breakdown of everything agreed or not agreed in Cancun. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank my guests, Roger Clayson, Jonathan Waghorn, David Blair and Fiona Harvey in Cancun. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.